Late last night at nearly midnight, former President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, stopped contesting that he lied about the 2020 election. He waved the legal version of a white flag. Specifically, Mr. Giuliani stopped contesting the claim that he made false statements about two Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss. Ruby Freeman and Shea Freeman Moss and one other gentleman, quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. After the 2020 election, Giuliani used this video to push a conspiracy theory that somehow, with USB sticks and secret boxes of ballots, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss had helped to steal the election from Donald Trump in Georgia. In Trump's infamous call pressuring Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find him nearly 12,000 votes, Trump himself brought up Ruby Freeman, and he brought her up 18 times. He called her a professional scammer and a hustler. To this day, you can still find that video pushing baseless conspiracies about Freeman and Moss. You can still find it on Trump's official YouTube page. None of the allegations against Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are true. They were doing their jobs. They broke no laws. The illicit thing that they passed each other was not a USB stick. It was a ginger mint. So when Mr. Giuliani made this major concession last night, no longer contesting that he lied about Moss and Freeman in their defamation case against him, when he did that, it was national news. And now today, Mr. Giuliani is saying that this latest admission was not actually an admission at all. Giuliani released a video tonight explaining that he isn't actually admitting that he lied. He is just no longer contesting that he lied in this specific court case so that it can move forward. In other words, Giuliani didn't want to have to prove he wasn't lying in court. I wonder why. So he's just going to stop contesting the facts. And the facts are Giuliani lied about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. But don't get the man wrong. Don't misquote him. Three years later, he is apparently somehow still sticking by the lies he told about these election officials, despite the profound damage those lies have done. There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? I've gained about 60 pounds. I just don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. Um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way. In every way. All because of lies. Around the week of January 6th, the FBI informed me that I needed to leave my home for safety. I received a call from my grandmother saying that um, there were people at her home and they, um, you know, they knocked on the door and of course she opened it and seeing who was there, who it was, and they just started pushing their way through, claiming that they were coming in to make a citizen's arrest. They needed to find me and my mom. They knew we were there. Of the other election workers shown in that State Farm Arena video and their supervisors, 
How many are still election workers in Fulton County? There is no permanent election worker or supervisor in that video that's still there. And did you end up leaving your, leaving your position as well? Yes, I, I left. The damage is done. Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss aren't just facts in a defamation case that can be conceded to and skipped over. They are real people. And in many ways, these two women are just the tip of the iceberg. Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss are emblematic of the real harm that Giuliani's and Trump's baseless claims of election fraud brought to election workers all across the country. We are going to play some clips now that are fairly disturbing. So if you want to mute your TV or if you want to cover your kids' ears, now is your chance. This is a sampling of the kind of vitriol that has been aimed at election officials thanks to the lies propagated by President Trump and his associates. Time's running out, Richard. We're coming after you and every mother that stole this election with our Second Amendment. Subpoenas be damned. You're going to be served lead, you fucking, fucking enemy communist sucker. You will be served lead. It has all gone too far. All of it. Joe DeGeneva today asked for Chris Krebs, a patriot who ran CISA, to be shot. A 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. One night, <laughs> one night in December 2020, I was about to put my son to bed when dozens of individuals descended upon our home. Growing in numbers over the course of an hour, they stood outside my front door, waking my neighbors, shouting obscenities and graphic threats into bullhorns. To this day, these images and this memory of that evening still haunts me. There is an omnipresent feeling of anxiety and dread that permeates our daily lives and those of our families. Not long ago, my son, standing in our driveway, picked up a stick, turned to me and said, don't worry, mom, if the bad guys come again, I'll get them with this. He's six years old. Threats and harassment like that have become a regular occurrence for election workers and election officials all across the United States. And like Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, that means a lot of them just choose not to return to their jobs. The Brennan Center for Justice polled election officials across the country and found that turnover is so high that when the 2024 election comes around, more than 20 percent of local election officials may have to be new recruits. That's people who have never administered presidential elections before. In key swing states, the effect of these election lies and accusations of fraud was even more acute. Last year, the Boston Globe actually quantified it. In Michigan, nearly 27% of county-level election officials have left their posts. In Wisconsin, 30% are gone. In Georgia, 36% have quit. In Arizona, 37% are gone. And in Pennsylvania, 39% are no longer on the job. Almost 40% of county election officials in the state that determined the final outcome of the 2020 presidential election, almost 40% of them have quit. That is the toll taken by these lies.
So thank you, Mr. Giuliani, for kind of sort of maybe admitting that you lied, but just in court to move a case along and not in real life. The damage quite clearly has been done. So how do we as a country clean up this mess? Joining me now is the Secretary of State of Michigan, Jocelyn Benson, the chief elections official for that state. Secretary Benson, thank you so much for being here. I would like to get your first, you know, your reaction to this. I think we can call it a concession on the part of Mr. Giuliani that these claims about these two election workers were baseless. I don't even know if I'd go so far as to say it's a concession because of the way outside of the court documents, uh, he continued to walk back what he said, but none of his capitulations or dancing in this moment or any other changes the reality and the history that he and others lied about an election causing dire consequences to the lives of professional election administrators in the process. I mean, people showed up outside my home two days, three days after Mayor Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani had showed up at our state capitol in Lansing telling lies about our elections. Shay and Ruby Moss, amazing women, represent the stories of so many untold election workers who have left their jobs because of these threats that come in many ways from these very loud voices and continue to do so. So the question is, will there be consequences for the violence and the threats that grew out of these lies? I certainly hope so. But we, as my colleague Gabe Sterling said, over three years, almost three years ago, this needs to stop. Also, we need to stop seeing Mike Lindell and so many others out there, including presidential candidates and U.S. senators spreading these lies to further political gain because it has real life consequences to the men and women whose job it is to make democracy work for everyone. Yeah, I, on that note, it's not just Giuliani and Trump, right? It's not limited to an administration that's intent on clinging to power. This is now the de facto position of the Republican Party to suggest that there was fraud in the 2020 election and could be in future elections. This is the position of presidential candidates. No one is out there telling the truth. And so I wonder, given as we are on the precipice of a potential federal indictment of the former president on January 6 charges or charges to interfere with the 2020 election, do you think that can have the effect that it potentially needs to have, which is an ameliorative effect to reverse the, the, the decay, the rot that has penetrated some of these institutions in terms of public confidence? Do you, do you think the toothpaste, for lack of a better metaphor, can be put back in the tube? Well, I think two things will result. I mean, certainly the accountability is a really important affirmation of the truth. When we were going through all of this in the fall of 2020, I remember the days in which we we were up against the federal government. The president of the United States was coming after us, it felt, and his most ardent supporters for just doing our jobs and doing nothing wrong. We, we couldn't help the fact that he lost a presidential election. Our job was just to make sure everyone could vote and then tell the truth. And so we always had these moments, my team, where we sort of recognized, you know, we may lose this battle over democracy in this moment. We may lose it in the future, and that's real. But the courts are the ones that held the line and demanded truth be told. And that's why this concession today or last night is so critical. It shows that you can't lie in the court of law. You can perhaps lie outside the Four Seasons gardening arena or wherever that press conference was meant to be held, but you can't lie in a court of law. And so the more we see legal cases brought forward, uh, pushing for the truth, whether it's criminal charges or defamation charges, that helps 
helps us get to a point where we have an official affirmation of what is fact and what is false. Uh, and the other thing I'll just mention what I've lived through as we've seen this unfold these last three years is at the same time we've seen um, pain in our democracy, people losing their jobs, people walking away from the work. We've also seen an influx of so many Americans on both sides of the aisle who know the truth, who know the courage that it took to defend the truth and are standing with us, serving as election workers, volunteering as poll workers for future elections because they believe in the process. And that in many ways gives me hope that we can emerge from this moment with a stronger elections process than ever before. Well, on that note, I mean, I guess, does it worry you that up to a fifth of election workers in the 2024 presidential race may be new, that they will have had no administrative experience in what is sure to be a contested election or at least a very fraught election, given the position of one of the leading candidates? Yes, certainly. That turnover is concerning. But it also provides us with an opportunity to recognize that over half of those election officials lived through 2020, we'll be back again in 2024. And we are ready, wisened, and strengthened, determined to protect the process and train those who are coming in as new election officials to be proud of this work, to stand with the truth and the will of the people, whatever it may be. So we have kind of gone through this these last few years here in Michigan, learning how to take these challenges and making them opportunities. And I think that's what you'll see, I believe, unfold in 2024. If Americans all across the country join with us and stand up to be part of the process and speak the truth and push back against the lies. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people appreciate the optimism of, um, you know, your position, which is that a, people are flooding the zone, as it were, when when democracy is being threatened, people aren't averting their eyes. They're coming and they're raising their hands to volunteer to help save it. Um, on that note, in less in a more sort of craven uh, uh, chapter of, of strengthening democracy, the Republican Party appears to understand that it is not good electoral politics to turn people off of early voting, mail-in voting, absentee balloting, um, and have the RNC is launching a new campaign featuring Donald Trump of all people urging Republicans to vote early. That's not the same thing as Donald Trump saying, "Look." the 2020 election wasn't stolen, but it is something. And I guess I wonder, A, what you make of that, and B, if you're at all optimistic that Donald Trump somehow can encourage people to come back, to come back home again to the institutions that we've set up that are thus far unparalleled in terms of their integrity. Well, look, I want everyone everywhere to take advantage of all the options they have to vote in their states and their communities. Look at the one that is open and most convenient for you, and no matter where you live or who you vote for, participate in democracy. And as far as the former president and others now embracing early voting, great. I'd like to see him also talk about how secure it is, how secure ballot drop boxes are, how we can trust the results of the election. Let's take that one step further. So you're not just endorsing the process, but overriding the past lies by telling the truth about the security of our elections and the security of early voting and the reliability of our machines and the results uh, in a paper ballot uh, election. Uh, if we see that, then I'll have more cause for optimism. But also we have to remember that it's neighbors and everyday citizens that can be the, our, the, the arbiters of truth and the truth tellers in their communities, even if we don't get that from candidates and politicians. So it's incumbent again upon all of us to learn the facts and truth about our elections and spread that to our neighbors, to our fellow parishioners, to our, our colleagues all around the country. And if we can do that as citizens, then we can fight back against the lies together. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, it's so great to get a view from the state and especially 
the state that's been soothed through so much as it concerns the 2020 election. Thanks. Thanks greatly for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We have a lot more to get to this evening. If you found the breathless headlines about Hunter Biden's plea deal collapsing, if you found those breathless headlines somewhat confusing, you are not alone. We're going to get into what actually happened and what it all means coming up next. Plus, watch what happens when NBC reporter and an NBC reporter asks uh, Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, whether he's cooperating with the special counsel's investigation into January 6th. Stick around for that. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Everyone condemned what happened in terms of the breach of the security on the Capitol on January 6th. Certain texts trying to feed a narrative that the January 6th committee uh, wants to put forth. I can condemn what happened on January 6th, but I'm not going to be intimidated. For nearly a full year after the attack on the Capitol, Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was more than happy to go on right wing TV to talk about January 6th and slam the House committee investigating it. But then last summer, after the committee released bombshell testimony from Meadows White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, well, the former chief of staff suddenly went quiet. I'm not commenting on anything that relates to the president running or January 6th. Have you spoken to Cassidy Hutchinson before or after her testimony? As I said, I don't comment on anything on January 6th, guys. That was a year ago. Since then, Mr. Meadows has had to deal with more than just a congressional committee. A judge ordered him to testify to the federal grand jury investigating January 6th, as well as Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And in the days and weeks since then, Mark Meadows has sort of disappeared. And that radio silence has led to rumors that Mark Meadows may have flipped on his former boss. Which brings us to today, when Mr. Meadows refused to even say the words January 6th. Have you testified before the grand jury? I, you know, I don't talk about anything J6 related. Do you feel like it's appropriate, the, the investigation? At least one former federal prosecutor says that Meadows' silence speaks volumes. What I will say in watching that video is that looks to me like somebody who's cooperating with the federal government. Joining us now is Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for the national security at the Department of Justice and co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Mary, thank you for being here. And Mary, can you enlighten those of us who have never done this before what it is like when a witness flips and starts cooperating with investigators? So oftentimes in an investigation, particularly where conspiracy is one of the charges being considered, prosecutors will 
uh, really try to reach out to, uh, you know, co-conspirators who face their own criminal culpability, who potentially might themselves be indicted. And if what they have to provide to the government is significant enough and is good enough evidence that it is so useful to a prosecution of the other co-conspirators, they will sometimes offer a cooperation agreement. That cooperation agreement can mean that the person will have to plead guilty to something, but it would be probably lesser charges than he otherwise might face if he were indicted. And in return for uh, pleading guilty to lesser charges and giving testimony against those who end up being indicted, the government will then also at sentencing file what's called a 5K letter, which is a substantial assistance letter, a letter saying to the judge, this cooperator provided substantial assistance to the government and therefore should get a lesser sentence. And in fact, a sentence that might even be below what the guidelines range is. Now, sometimes if the person's testimony and evidence is so valuable, prosecutors might even decide not to uh, require the person to plead guilty to anything and simply say, if you provide truthful testimony and we believe it's truthful and you cooperate fully and completely, we won't charge you at all. And so oftentimes when there are multiple people who are being investigated and there's, you know, some information that's publicly known that would suggest that they all have culpability, when one person suddenly, you know, stops talking, like we've seen with Mr. Meadows, that, you know, puts up sort of, you know, the spidey sense among other prosecutors and sometimes members of the public that that person is cooperating. Well, yeah, and I feel like that's exactly what's happening here, right? Here's Mr. Talkie Talkie on Fox News, who then, and who, by the way, gave some important text to the January 6th committee, all of a sudden does not want to talk about it, is not seen in and, in the, in and around the circles that he is normally seen in, doesn't want to say the words January 6th anymore. Do you feel like Meadows would be a valuable cooperating witness? I mean, I say that, I know the answer to that, but in which ways do you think he could actually be very perilous for Donald Trump specifically? Well, you know, I would I would throw out one caution. I would think even if he wasn't cooperating, if I were his attorney and I thought he was potentially going to be uh, indicted, I would also have told him, keep your mouth shut like no more mm. public comments. Um, so, you know, you can have another interpretation of this. But getting to your question, you know, Mr. Meadows was one of the people with the closest and most access to Donald Trump in the period between the election, November 3rd of 2020 and January 6th of 2021. You know, he was at all the most significant meetings. He was part of, you know, the calls and the pressure campaign on Brad, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia to find the more than 11,000 votes that he needed in order to win Georgia. He was involved in communications with uh, co congressional members and state legislatures in the swing states where they were sort of pushing this idea that the legislature could come in and, you know, reverse the results in various states and ultimately also pushing the fraudulent elector scheme where the electors for Trump went ahead and met, voted and sent their uh, their electoral ballots into Vice President Pence. He was part and parcel of all those things, but he was also right there hearing, uh, Mr. Trump, you know, every day and, and, and could really, I think, add a lot of, um, important details to what we've already pieced together from emails and texts and, and, uh, testimony that's come out in front of the House Select Committee. He could really, you know, 
flesh out all the details and be, I think, an extremely powerful witness against Mr. Trump, assuming that he appears credible. Um, and, you know, anytime there's a cooperator who has something themselves to gain, that means they have a bias. They are trying to gain the favor of the government. And that is in, the jury gets instructed about that and instructed that the jury should weigh that. The fact that the person has a personal interest and their own bias toward benefiting themselves, that should be weighed in assessing the credibility of the witness. So so right now, uh, or, or maybe prior to right now, that's part of what the prosecutors th- themselves are figuring out. Does Mark Meadows come out off credible when he testifies? Uh, will a jury believe him? What about Rudy Giuliani? I mean, we had this sort of garbled position he's taken on Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss maybe conceding that the, the his baseless claims were in fact baseless. Does, does, does his position on that have any potential effect on Jack Smith and the sort of halting the discovery process in that trial? Does it have an effect on what Jack Smith may be trying to get out of Rudy, Rudy Giuliani for his own January 6th investigation? So I think that um, obviously these things are completely separate. And the declaration that Mr. Giuliani filed through his attorneys last night does say that his concessions or admissions or stipulations are limited solely to that case. And what he really did is he he did this as a nolo contendere. There is evidence that would support that these were definitely defamatory per se, and they were knowingly false. And so I think he has given that up in that case. That can't be used necessarily in Jack Smith's case. Uh, They'd have to have litigation over that. And his attorneys tried to, you know, cabin that. Um, I think that Jack Smith probably wanted to talk to Mr. Giuliani to find out, you know, just to try to sort of lock him into some things. Um, but I, I personally would be extremely hesitant if I were prosecuting this case to rely on Mr. Giuliani as a cooperating witness, because, you know, I, I think there's the possibility that Mark Meadows might be credible, but, but Mr. Giuliani has lied so much to so many people about so many things that are easily proven false that I would be yeah. very reluctant to put that man on the stand. Well, so far, it doesn't look like he has a deal. So I think your I think your assessment seems to be reflected in the thinking of the special counsel as as it has been reported thus far. Mary McCord, co-host of the MSNBC podcast, prosecuting Donald Trump. Thank you, Mary, so much for your time tonight. Sure. Still to come this evening, former Vice President Mike Pence still wants to qualify for the first Republican presidential primary debate. Badly. Plus, what really went down when Hunter Biden appeared in court today? The explanation is coming up next. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. 
Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Several years ago, while Donald Trump was still president, the Department of Justice opened an investigation into Hunter Biden, the son of presidential candidate Joe Biden. President Trump was apparently unaware of that investigation and was reportedly livid when, days after losing that election, it was Hunter Biden himself who announced that he was under federal investigation related to a tax case. Trump perhaps understood this to be a missed opportunity. Anyway, the DOJ investigation continued, and under Joe Biden's presidency, Hunter Biden was charged with two misdemeanors for failing to pay his taxes on time in 2017 and 2018. Biden is also facing a separate charge for failing to disclose he was using drugs when he bought a gun back in 2018. And so after all of these years, the Hunter Biden saga was poised to conclude today as Biden and his lawyers entered a Delaware court ready to plead guilty to the tax charges. Now, the guilty plea was part of an agreement Biden had reached with the prosecutor in charge of this investigation, the prosecutor who was a Trump appointee. That agreement stated that Hunter Biden would not be prosecuted for the gun charge if he abided certain conditions. Experts say this was a fairly standard deal, but it fell apart today, at least temporarily, over a question about the terms of the agreements. The judge also asked both sides about the scope of the immunity, which was a good question to ask, given that Trump and a lot of other Republicans are running on a promise to prosecute Hunter Biden again with or without evidence. Joining us now is former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official Chuck Rosenberg. He is also an MSNBC contributor. Chuck, it's great to see you uh, this evening. And thank you for in advance for helping clear up what exactly went down in Delaware today. The first I mean, I think a lot of people understand that this plea deal had been worked on for quite some time now. So how exactly did it fall apart in the courtroom at the last minute and how unusual is that? Yeah, it's unusual. I mean, plea agreements happen all the time, every day in every federal courthouse around the country, Alex. And every now and then they hit a snag. It's unusual, but not unheard of. When it happens in a high-profile case, of course, we're paying more attention. So what happened here? There seemed to be two problems. The first one was that the judge was concerned that the pretrial diversion agreement gave her a role that she was uncomfortable with, not just adjudicating whether there was a breach or could be a breach of that provision down the road, but that it gave her some other decision-making authority that she thought best left to the executive branch. Now, we haven't seen the plea documents. I don't know precisely what the language is. We don't know precisely what concerned her, but that seems to be snag number one. Snag number two is what you just referred to, how broadly the government would confer on Biden once he pled guilty immunity for other crimes. Happy to talk about either. Um, they're both important. I do think, however, Alex, that they will be resolved and this will ultimately go forward. Do you think those those two snags have are sort of 
political at their root. I mean, I would imagine if you're Hunter Biden's team, resting any power or privilege with the executive branch branch is is chancy, right, depending on who the executive is. And the same is true for, uh, you know, other parts where you're deferring to potential DOJ investigations down the line when, oh, I don't know, Donald Trump could be president again. I mean, do you think that that's at the root of the concern here, that Biden's folks are worried that this could be the new Benghazi where Hunter, Hunter Biden is, you know, investigated exhaustively despite whatever evidence may not exist? Yeah, I, I imagine their concerns are not with this prosecutor or this administration. But to your larger point, the reason a defendant would want broad immunity from other prosecutions uh, is because, well, in this case, if Mr. Trump wins the presidency, he's vowed to go after what he calls the Biden crime family. I think that's a deeply offensive and reckless statement, but it has to resonate with Hunter Biden. And so, when a defendant pleads guilty, they're looking for immunity from crimes that the government knows about, that it has investigated. They want some assurance that this chapter in their life has closed. The government, of course, wants to confer a more narrow immunity. Let me give you an example, if I may, Alex. Let's say you and I are out robbing banks across the country, and we've robbed 10, and the government knows about all 10, and you and I plead guilty to three of those. They're going to promise us that they're not going to prosecute us for the additional seven. That's typical. But maybe they don't know that you and I are also counterfeiting currency. And so the government wouldn't agree to immunize us as part of our plea agreement for stuff they don't know about. And that was one of the issues today. How broad is the immunity that the government's going to confer on Mr. Biden if he pleads guilty? And of course, Mr. Biden is thinking not just about this attorney general and this president and this administration, but what might happen to him if Mr. Trump regains the presidency. Well, and indeed, those concerns seem well-founded, given the fact that members of Congress speaking today, Republicans, including Nancy Mace, saying, I think that the, the, the sort of dissolution of this plea deal opens some doors here and gives us a little more fuel behind what we're doing. They've suggested that there could be an impeachment inquiry regarding Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's alleged role in, in some of the financial misdeeds, though there has been no actual evidence to that end. I mean— how unusual is it to have members of Congress making statements about federal and federal investigations like this? Yeah, I've gone through much of my adult life, Alex, not paying any attention to what members of Congress say. And I, I mean that in a bipartisan sense. I don't think it matters at all to the prosecutors here. It may matter in some quarters. It may matter in politics. It may matter for fundraising. But to the prosecutors, I can assure you it doesn't matter at all, and they don't pay attention to it. So it's an unusual case because it's a high-profile case. Most cases, as I mentioned, do resolve by plea agreement. Occasionally, they hit snags. But what Republicans or Democrats or anyone has to say about it, frankly, doesn't mean very much at all. <laughs> And we're going to leave it on that note. Chuck Rosenberg, thank you for making the time tonight. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Still to come, while Mike Pence still has not found enough small donors to qualify for the Republican presidential debate stage, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is doing better. Sort of. We'll explain coming up. We're reaching out to people all across the country who share our vision, our conservative values, and 
and even encouraging people to go to MikePence2024.com and just donate a dollar to get us on that stage. We're grateful for the support. Even one dollar at MikePence2024.com will make sure we get on that stage. Even one dollar. Uh, <laughs> although I want to emphasize you can give a lot more. Uh, 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 would, uh, would be a help tonight. Go to MikePence2024.com. Donate even a dollar. You'll help us get on that debate stage in a month. If you have seen presidential candidate Mike Pence lately, then you have heard him pleading for cash. Because the Republican who recently served as the vice president of the United States has still not qualified for the first Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee next month. Vice President Pence has run into trouble reaching a key benchmark to qualify for a spot on that debate stage, getting at least 40,000 individual donors public service, name recognition, serving the second highest elected position in the country, putting your life on the line to certify election results. Turns out still can't buy you 40,000 people who are willing to give your campaign a dollar. So far, at least seven of Pence's Republican rivals have announced they have qualified to appear on the stage. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, and Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota. For candidates like Ramaswamy and Burgum, it turns out that close to zero name recognition can indeed buy you 40,000 people who are willing to give your campaign a dollar, particularly when you literally try to buy those people off. Governor Burgum offered $20 gift certificates to the first 50,000 donors who gave at least a dollar, and Mr. Ramaswamy offered his donors a 10% cut of money that they raised for his campaign. Just like Avon. Only instead of getting commission for selling eyeshadow, Vivek Ramaswamy has been offering people a commission on the money they raised for Vivek Ramaswamy. And now Mr. Ramaswamy and Governor Bergen have secured their spots at the debate and a bunch of supporters have a lot of gift cards. Former Vice President Mike Pence, however, continues to try and get there the old-fashioned way, with endless appeals on conservative media. When we come back, what the RNC's criteria for these small dollar donations tells us about the race as it stands right now. That is next. Okay, take a look at this. This is a graph showing the share of fundraising from small dollar donors to Republican 2024 presidential candidates in the first two quarters of this year. Donald Trump is the leading candidate. 82% of Trump's total fundraising comes from individual from individual contra- contributors is from small dollar donors. Those are people who gave $200 or less. And those are the kind of donors who are typically able to donate more than once. They also happen to give us a pretty good indication of the grassroots enthusiasm that is out there. Now, the enthusiasm for Trump is evident despite his considerable legal peril. And then there is biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. He's the one offering a 10% commission to donors who raise additional money for his campaign. He is second on this list, with nearly 56% of his total fundraising coming from small dollar contributors. Now, small dollar donations also tell us a lot about a campaign's long-term viability and whether it has a base of sustaining donors who help keep it afloat in the long run. Which brings me to Ron DeSantis. 17% of his fundraising comes from those small dollar donations, which is, well, it raises some questions. Joining me now to help answer them is Tim Miller, writer for The Bulwark. He was also a communications director for Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign, which I remember well and which we're going to talk about in a second, Tim. But first, the small dollar donations, those numbers, to me, more than the diminishing poll numbers, 
seem like a considerable problem for the DeSantis campaign. Do you read it that way, Tim? Yeah, they sound really familiar. They look like about the Jeb Bush numbers. I don't exactly remember what our percentage was, but it was probably close to 17. And uh, we all remember how that turned out, me more vividly than most. Um, Here's the problem is that DeSantis was always going to be the golden boy of the donor class, right? The big donors, the rich donors, because they thought that he was going to be the person that could save them from Donald Trump. He was MAGA enough that the rank and file voters would like, but that, you know, he wouldn't do all the crazy stuff that Donald Trump did. they, They could trust him to advance conservative policies on economic issues. Well, it's turned out that the voters have a say in that and and that they don't like the candidate that much that was put up by the Republican donor class, the rank and file MAGA voters. In fact, they like Vivek Ramaswamy better. And he is doing that 10 percent, you know, gimmick. But I I, I listened to a lot of MAGA media. I was listening to the Candace Owens show for a whole month for a Bulwark article. And they love Vivek on on those podcasts. This is an outsider who doesn't like the GOP establishment, who's not into the war in Ukraine, who's not into vaccines. That's the kind of person that the GOP base is looking for. And, And Ron DeSantis is the kind of person that, you know, a bunch of rich guys in New York and Chicago are looking for. I just wonder if this is, I mean, at the risk of being premature, the fact that he's firing, I think they're fired as at least 50 and as many as 80 campaign staffers on the DeSantis campaign. That happened once upon a time in McCain land, I think in 2000. But is this anything but a a swirling of the drain for DeSantis? I mean, when you have no measurable, um, retail skill at retail politicking, when you have no donor base, when your poll numbers are decreasing as the more people learn about you and see you, is there anywhere to go but out? Uh, Yeah, it was actually the 08 McCain uh, campaign. I was on that one, too. So I've got a lot of experience with campaigns in Ron DeSantis' situation. Um, And, uh, you know, John McCain was very different candidate, as you're pointing out, right? Like like going much smaller, going much more intimate, spending a lot more time with voters and trying to get momentum that way. That fit John McCain, right? Like that fit his style. That doesn't fit Ron DeSantis. He doesn't seem to even like voters that much talking to them. So so going lean and mean and let Ron be Ron, it's hard to see how that works. That said, the thing that the one reason why I'm not totally ready to you know put up his gravestone is that at some point it wasn't that long ago that 30, 40 percent of the Republican electorate said that they wanted him and that that he he did it that he did you know well in Florida with Republican voters. And so, you know, if something happens to Donald Trump, he has a lot of indictments out there. You know, he eats a lot of well-done cheeseburgers. You know, like Ron DeSantis, I, I don't think has totally lost that you know, connection that he had to at least a certain part of the Republican base. It just isn't enough of the Republican base to to, you know, take on Donald Trump if he continues to stay as strong in a strong position as he's in and, um, among Republican primary voters. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Tim, <laughs> the X factor here, which is to say maybe the only factor is Donald Trump. I mean, I, we were talking I was talking to our my former colleague and your your I don't know what you call him your current colleague, someone you have worked with in the recent past, John Heilman. He said it kind of doesn't even matter what else happens with these other candidates, because the only thing that matters right now is Donald Trump's survival in this race. And right now there's no signs that he's going anywhere. I know we, that we're talking about the, the looming federal indictments and the cheeseburgers, but the, the fact of the matter is the base is with him like 80%. And until that changes, until there's a black swan event, they are but details, are they not? 
That's very right. He's getting stronger. And, uh, you know, as I once said, it's all about Trump. It's not like any of these other fantasy candidates. It's not like Tim Scott or Glenn Youngkin or anybody else that the Republican donor class is talking about is going to come in and do any better than Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, part of his problem is his own personality and his campaign. But the other part of his problem is Donald Trump. And, and as long as Donald Trump remains in this position, uh, you know, we're, we're staring down the barrel of a Donald Trump nomination. Almost certainly. Tim Miller, thank you so much for your insight tonight, my friend, as always. And and going back in the annals of failed Republican campaigns, there's no person with more experience than you, Tim. It's great to see you. That is our show for tonight.